Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. England defence and the best job has gone for the high ball, trying to knock it down for Hosanna. Goal! And they've scored! <laughs> Ray Houghton! We're a small country and listen, we're up against it, but let's not just go along for the sing song every now and again. Robson Canu könnte sich drehen, ganz links aus, Robson Canu, Schuss und Tor! Robson Canu, Robson Canu, hell, Robson Canu, hell on fire, sozusagen, mein liebes Lieschen, zu eins für Wales. Heißer Summ. Was sagst du jetzt, JJ? Ja, wunderbarer Haufen da unten. Ein kleiner Drachenhaufen. Sie sind übereinander hergefallen und werden jetzt erst wieder Yes, Hal Robson Kanu. Hell on fire, is that it? Ist on Ist fire. On fire That's indeed. the German for is on fire. You're a very welcome to Monday's Irish Time Second Captain's Euros podcast. That's Murph sneering me already. Hi, Richie. That's how you doing? Uh, we're doing pretty well, all right. Quite a lot of amazing commentary over the course of the last few weeks, but I think we all did a lot of laughing around Iceland's win against England, and uh, it we was did. fair enough, given the context. Yep. Brexit, it being Iceland and all that kind of thing. I laughed a lot when Robson Kanu scored that goal. As in, in the kind of incredulous way you do when... Okay, say Robbie Brady heads one in for us. Amazing goal, amazing feeling. Imagine it was the equivalent of, say, Daryl Murphy scoring a goal like Robson Canu scored against Belgium, against a first-choice Belgium team in a quarter-final. Uh, it was stunning, and I laughed a lot. What you make of it? Because it's so unexpected. Completely unexpected, yeah. and uh, there was just the optics of it, the fact that it was this Cruyff turn, the way that Lukaku and the other defenders An all entire bought back it. four bought Th- that, one Yeah, turn. that's the... That was the real joyous part of the whole thing. Not so much just what Robson Canner did, but the defenders all just 
legging it. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah just Sprinting at high speed it, away from it's the It's like danger. a little kid yeah. sees something and says, what's over there? And then just run and then it was a yeah. really tidy finish, nice bit of skill. I, I was going to say it was also a tidy finish because yeah, there's, it was there's really, a danger there that once you've done that, uh, you're, well, you know a yeah. lot more than me, I'm sure you've missed one or two. It, it can be, okay, great. Look what I've just done here and I've still got enough time I, to miss this. I'm, I'm trying to recall, I don't know how much experience I have of doing a Cruyff turn to B3 Defenders. <laughs> so I, I, I may, I'm sure loads of examples will come to my mind after this recording. Of course, it always but yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. When, when when you do a certain amount of work, and then you go right, this this yeah. is the bit that matters. Don't 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 mess up. Don't. And, oh God, I've messed up. He didn't that, mess up. He was brilliant. He's but a smart cookie as well. Yeah, the defending, like lads, what he's like, what no, he did. Crazy. He's been talking since about a lot was made of the fact that he's without a club at the moment. Now he has since said that that's because he wants to be without a club. Mm. That he's allowed his contract to wind down at Reading. He's actually had offers already before the tournament, but decided he'd hang on till after the tournament which is looking pretty smart. Yeah, it, I think that is an important detail, like that he l- allowed his contract to run down as opposed to... You know, Nobody this, wants The story of this jobless footballer <laughs> <is> taking <laughs> over Europe. That's what I thought it was until I, I looked into it a bit more. I remember it was to say, I, I think, was it Gary Breen in 2002? I remember mm. he played for us against Spain, against Raul, and I think he was out of contract or something, maybe at Coventry, yeah. but he had allowed his contract to run down, I think. But it was the same thing, you know. Jobless Gary Breen is all this kind of stuff, but I, I'd be wary now. And I think this, 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 often this happens when a player does really well at a tournament. You get a load of offers. I, I, I'd be careful of of any club because if you're going to judge Robson Cano, have a look at him over the you know a season, two or three seasons. But I'd be wary of giving him a bumper contract offer based on what he's done over the last couple of weeks. Well, not everybody would have been overjoyed at Wales' win. There's a growing feeling that while these underdog stories, if that's even what Wales' story is anymore, maybe there uh, there's a grey area there. But these stories are all well and good in the early stages. By the time the tournament gets to the last four, you really want the biggest teams left in there. John Bruin tweeted, the thing I like most in football is watching a minnow squashed flat by a giant. It confirms that I was right all along. <laughs> Idolise me. Danny Baker got back your mate Murph. He says, my thoughts entirely love an overdog, cannot stomach the gung-ho support for Sunday drivers. And Damien Duff on TV with you, Richie, essentially said the same thing. Yeah, love these fairy tales. Iceland story, great, but uh, let's let them move over now and let the big boys come and play. Yeah, the miserable shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had no, he had no time at all for the... the the, the, the dream center. Duffer God <laughs> exactly. come on man Duffer dreams up until the semi-finals and then he yeah. wants the big players well it, it was I mean you can see his point is, I just want to see real quality real mm. players and this is the latter stages so we should expect and, and feel entitled to see you know the best players that are out there but um, no I, 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 you would have liked Iceland to have gone on yeah, I, I would, well not have to see them last night to be honest I couldn't have stomached maybe sitting <laughs> through a performance like that from a team in the semi-final Um yeah. I mean, they were battered after 20 minutes. The result was gone. So, yes, on last night's performance, sure. But, like, go back to England match. Like, that was that was joyous. Like, Iceland beating England. Like, there's, yeah. something, there's something amazing and memorable and special about seeing a, a, an event like that, which is so unlikely and so unusual. Um, a lot of these games in this tournament, like, in a month's time, I'll have forgotten about most of them. Oh, I've forgotten about a lot of them already. A, a load of them now. This is, the, the Week one was... Bit of a blur. They mm. kind of they all kind of rolled in one to the other. So um, that's I, I I wouldn't be as as as, as harsh as that. Yeah, I think that there is. I, I, I pretty uh, easy to define uh, line after which you don't really want that many shocks. So I think round of sixteen, absolutely fine. Uh, have a few shocks in there. Have a few now. Not I don't want any more than two. You wouldn't have liked <laughs> Iceland to have beaten France. Gone on. 
taking care of Germany. Well, I just think that's... And then playing the final against Wales. That is not, that's not sport to you, no? I, I think that's a high risk. You're all as miserable as stuff. No, I think it's, I think it's a high risk uh, uh, way to go about things because the thrashing was going to come sooner or later. So better to have it in the quarterfinal and then have... Fr- now, I don't want Portugal anywhere near the Euro semi-finals. I mean, th- no one wants them there. They're terrible. The, the only reason Portugal... You might want Portugal uh, to, to, to win this is some sort of hilarious schadenfreude that Ken touched on last week where Ronaldo wins the Euros for Portugal while barely playing at all. Lionel Messi can't lead Argentina as <laughs> a Copa America, playing brilliantly. Uh, that there would be some sort of uh, uh, schadenfreude to be had there around the whole uh, Messi-Ronaldo thing. But other than that, I mean, they've been not good and boring. And, you know, I, I, there's... Like, Wales, definitely. But I think we'd all much rather see, you know, the Italians, say, get to the last four. Would you not have liked to have seen Iceland beating France? Had, yeah, if they gave a performance that warranted victory. Not, yeah. not like one of these unexplainable jammy they got one shot on target and scored and the French defenders had 68 shots on goal and the keeper had a great game N- not that if it was a if it was you know they went toe to toe obviously they play in different ways but if mm. they came out on top you, you no, wouldn't I, have liked to have seen I ex- that I accept that I'm, I'm talking more about in a general sense by the time the semi-finals come I want to see four of the best five or six teams see that's fine but that's making the, the semi-final. yeah that's Based on the premise that on paper those teams are going to serve up some sort of classic heavyweight battle, we we, like, we didn't get that with Italy and Germany mm. at the weekend. It was quite a poor game, really, and Germany laboured through that one. So I don't but know. I think it, it, just it, it, the it, assumption that just because they're big teams and big players, they're going to play like that in the semi-finals. Oftentimes, it's the opposite. They actually they've been there before. They know what it takes to use the euphemism to get through, which often means going to penalties and hoping for the best. <laughs> And that's sometimes what happens. <laughs> would you would you have liked to have seen Belgium ahead of Wales? See again, that's kind of the point you're kind of yes. getting to. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. I mean, all I can say is, <laughs> over the totality of my sport watching career, this is my belief. Now, if you're putting me on the spot and asking me about Wales, yeah, Belgium, and doing. France, Iceland, I am putting you on the spot. Then you know, maybe I'm giving you're you a wavering. slightly different answer. Maybe my 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 thought process isn't you know 100 percent pure distilled on this particular issue because Wales and Belgium was the best game of the tournament and one of the most fun as well it was a lot of fun because again it wasn't just Iceland, England small team beats big team it was also smaller team beats big team that is kind of easy enough to dislike Mm. Uh, you know so there's a a wrinkle there also I think we're going to talk to Anton Inge Sven Bjorsen you'll remember our Icelandic friend from last week I was following his tweets last night he was very pumped up before the game extremely Mm. pumped up and uh, somewhat deflated. He was struggling to find the positives afterwards, but I'm sure he'll. I'm sure he'll have them. Well, if he's if he's out of bed today, I'm sure he'll have found the positives uh, since last night. So we'll chat to him. If I've already said the other name that we're going to feature in today's show, our favourite English football basher was at it again. I can't find my bell, unfortunately. I don't know. I think Simon took it, and I don't know if he liked the sound of it. So he's taking it away. But uh, you've got to give me something to replace it with, Simon, to signify a Baker tweet. <laughs> Perfect. I much preferred the. Uh the DIY job but anyway this shows how pathetic we were writes Danny Baker every time an England squad player comes to take a throw next season the crowd should break into ice ice baby (laughs) idiot England squad should be made to watch this live while reporters quiz them why couldn't you do this see how real teams play (laughs) more later alright let's get over to Ken in Paris 
Ken, are you in the Murph, Baker, Bruin, Duffer camp? Happy to see the back of crappy old Iceland. You were at the game last night. I was. Uh, I wasn't happy to see the back of Iceland. Uh, I think the better team <laughs> the better team won that game. <laughs> better team won 5-2. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, mm. I, I, I thought it was a pity Iceland couldn't make more of a game of it. You know, um, the way that it happened, it was all over very quickly. Um, you know, you could see people leaving with 10 minutes to go to try and get to the train. It was one of those types of European quarterfinals. But um, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm reminded, Owen, I was listening to you there, I'm reminded of uh, Hugh McIlvaney's cutting response to, uh, was it Simon Barnes? Simon Barnes, the sports writer from The Times, longtime sports writer from The Times. And uh, uh, I think it was the 2002 World Cup and, and Barnes, a competition where there was a lot of upsets. And Barnes said, oh, isn't this great? You know, McAvaney was like, oh, this, this is terrible. This is terrible. And Barnes said, no, what do, you, what do you mean? It's it's fantastic. It's great to see, you know, Senegal beating France and, you know, all, all the other upsets there was in that tournament. And McAvaney turned and fixed him with a roomy eye and said, you like giant killers. I like giants. <laughs> and then and walked away, walked away. And uh, poor old Simon Barnes realized, uh, well, you know. That's put me back in my box. So um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen any giants so far at this uh, European championship. I don't really see any teams that have blown me away with their quality. So I'd be quite happy. I, I'm not really – I mean, where? how do you even categorize some of these teams? Where do Wales fit in? Well, they're are Wales, underdogs. Are, are no, Wales, Wales are, a little team or, Wales, or, 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 Wales, or not? Yeah. If you, you have to categorize them by how you thought about them before the tournament started. And I didn't talk to one person who – thought that Wales were going to get to a semi-final and could beat Hammer Belgium essentially in a quarter-final if it came to it. They're playing like like overdogs and they've got Gareth Bale in their team, but not on Wales. They've never been, they haven't been here for 50 years. They're a small, small football nation. It's true. Although, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought Portugal would get to the semi-final of this competition <laughs> either, although you know, maybe I should have paid more attention to their historical record where they actually keep getting to the semi-finals of this competition. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I mean, there was a friend of mine was talking to me after the England-Wales game. Remember that was a game where England had put on all their strikers. And he said, England are like a, a tiny... Look at England with all their strikers and puny back five. They're like a tiny little crab with gigantic claws that it can't lift. You know, look at our claws! Scream England, you're just a tiny crab, says everyone else. Um, <laughs> Wales, in this case, are like a kind of a cyborg prawn. Uh, you know, a tiny little shrimp with an enormous mechanical pincer attached that you, you really don't want this thing to get a hold of you because it will crush the life out of you. I mean, what, where do you categorize a creature like that? I mean, you can't put it in with the little fish. You know, you can put it in with the big fish. It seems to be smaller. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you've got to watch out for the claw. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to feel about it. Chris Coleman was asked afterwards uh, one of these questions these sort of life lessons question, what can we learn from this incredible triumph, Chris? And I think the, the interviewer was looking for him to answer in a general sense about Wales, but he took it to be a question about himself, which gave a far more interesting answer. Uh, and, and he came out with, well, essentially, you just got to keep plugging away. I've failed a lot more than I've succeeded. But, you know, you keep, you keep trying and you get there in the end. I like the fact that he 
brought it around to himself because too often managers only talk about how great their players are and not about how well they've done. And Chris Coleman has done unbelievably well. I mean, he set that team up so well against Belgium. And we talked earlier on about the, the different ways you can... Um, you know, you can you can win these games if you're the supposed lesser team, but there was nothing like that uh, for for Wales. They just, they just seemed to outplay Belgium. You were there. It certainly looked on TV like they uh, once they conceded, once they recovered from the shock of the early chances and the early goal that they conceded, they seemed to be fairly on it. It was an amazing game, and uh, you know, I mean, it looked it looked for the first 15 minutes as though Belgium were absolutely going to blow Wales away. Mm. You know, there was that uh, moment where. Uh, they had three shots in like two seconds and Wales are defending desperately. Shortly after that, they scored this great goal. Kevin Brown was absolutely running the show. Um, it just looked as though they're going to rip Wales apart. And then uh, it just didn't, it didn't work out that way at all. You know, Mark Vilmots afterwards, I was really looking forward to seeing Vilmots for the first time since Bordeaux, where I remember he was really lording it. Uh, a little bit, he, you know, it was as though he'd won the European Championships, and and it, this was his moment to bury all the critics. And I was thinking, you know, you've, you've actually only won your second game here, Vilmots. You know, this is this is maybe the wrong tone uh, uh, that you're that you're hitting here. Um, and it turned out that all of the kind of cracks in that Belgian team, which people had been suggesting maybe existed before they, you know, smashed Ireland, they actually really did exist. And we saw Belgium wilt once they conceded. Um, once they conceded that first goal, in fact, even a little bit before that, Belgium had started to wilt. What they did was they, you know, as Coleman pointed out afterwards, this is a team that scored the eight previous goals, eight unanswered goals they'd scored um, in the Euros um, since they led in the two against Italy. Five of them had been on the counter attack. You know, that's they're incredible on the counter attack. Remember, we were talking about this after the Ireland game. You know, they've got players who are really good at burying teams on the, on the counter-attack. Um, and Belgium decided, evidently, that they wanted to play that way after they took the lead. Rather than doing what they had been doing up to then, which is just dominating the game with their superior technical ability, they decided to drop back and let Wales have the ball and hope that they could, you know, get it off them, run up the other end of the field and score. But it didn't work because Wales are actually really good at keeping the ball. And Wales have got some live wire players. I mean, it's not just a case of Bale. You know, Ramsey was absolutely fantastic. You know, I hadn't been super impressed with Ramsey. I mean, I saw him against England and, uh, and he was quite poor. Um, but he was brilliant against Belgium. Just, you know, he's got speed of thought, speed of feet, speed of movement around the pitch. Uh, very difficult player to contain. He played, I think, six key passes. I mean, passes leading to a chance. Um, in that game, which is more than any other player in the quarterfinal round. The decision to drop back and let Wales have the ball was suicidal for Belgium, it turned out. But they reacted really too late. Once the goal went in, then suddenly it was it, they, the team disintegrated. You could see, did you see Kevin De Bruyne on the goal? Kevin uh, De Bruyne uh, was marking the post. Vilmos was actually screaming at him to get away from the post, which he belatedly did which allowed the ball to bounce through the space that he had just been standing in from Ashley Williams' head and into the goal. The Browner then starts screaming at Jordan Lukaku, the you know, young defender whose head the ball had just gone over. The Browner's screaming at this guy. I'm thinking, that's not, this is not the moment really to, to scream at your much more junior teammate. You know, you're the big star in the team. Your job now is to score a goal, not to scream at Jordan Lukaku and, and you know, try to wreck his confidence. Same thing on the second goal. 
the second the second Wales goal, uh, the Robson Canu goal. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne, who wasn't any, who this time wasn't actually involved. I mean, remember the first the first time he was kind of partially guilty for the goal, and then still started to scream at others. Second goal, he was back ranting and raving at his defenders. After that, now in fairness, the defenders had made absolute fools of themselves. Although I'm not sure how clearly it came across on TV that the reason they all did that was that they all assumed, like everybody else uh, in the stadium, that Robson Canu is going to lay this ball back to Neil Taylor. Neil Taylor was, was coming up and he's coming into the left side of the box. It's a really obvious pass. It's like the only thing he can do because he's got three men on him. And if he, if he passes it to Taylor, there's a good chance Taylor's going to have a, a decent shot. Maybe there'll be a guy, you know, trying to throw himself in the way of it. But this is a good chance. It's obvious what he's going to do. That's why they were all running. They were all running to block that shot that was about to come. And so Robson Kandu brilliantly does this Cruyff turn that fooled everyone. I mean, I was completely fooled by it. I, can, I have sympathy with guys who were fooled by it. Kevin De Bruyne didn't have sympathy, but, you know, he's, he's a kind of a boy who doesn't know how to, um, he doesn't really understand how to be a leader. I mean, Belgium need him to be a leader and he's not. Uh, there was a lot of Belgian players seem to be in a silk. Um, you know, even Hazard just did the usual disappearing act. Thibaut Courtois was, you know, he's the goalkeeper, can't really influence the game that much, but was fuming so much he, he stomped off the pitch and immediately, um, you know, attacked his coach again. <laughs> he loves doing that in the post-match interviews. So, <laughs> so, so really what I'm saying, Owen, I was talking about this to Daniel McDonald. He was like, we, we were right. We were right about Belgium before the Ireland game. Just unfortunately, we were right too soon. <laughs> we were right too soon. Uh, Wales were able to show them up. Uh, Ireland couldn't quite do it. Uh, and fair play to Wales. They played brilliantly and fully deserves to be in the semi-final. Eden Hazard's a bit of a sham, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He's, he really yeah. is. Come on. Like, uh, I, what, I, well, he's he, an incredibly frustrating. So frustrating. He's so talented. and he, 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 he is almost suffering now from that amazing season he had a couple of years ago. Because now everyone knows how good he should be all the time. And he just doesn't look like he could be bothered to be that. Uh, you know, even it was, De, it was De Brown. I know you're giving out about his attitude, but at least he cared, and you know, maybe uh, a little bit showed that a little bit in the wrong way. But he was taking the fight to Wales to a certain extent. Whereas Hazard, I just thought disappeared entirely. Well, I don't want to give De Bruyne too much credit because he didn't do much in the game after the first fifteen or twenty minutes. Mm. Um, he is though uh, an ambitious and driven player. I mean, he's you know he's. He, when you see him in the field, he's not necessarily, he's not the most likable. He's not, I wouldn't say he's the most pleasant teammate, but in a sense, you'd rather, you would rather have him in your team. You would rather be playing with him than Eden Hazard, even if everyone in the team doesn't like him. What was the, Tom Williams, the Welsh journalist we had on earlier uh, in the tournament, tweeted something about Ronaldo, which is, Ronaldo, monumental player, but if he was your mate, there'd be a WhatsApp group he didn't know about. I would say, I would say Kevin De Bruyne is is also in that category. I'd say there's all kinds of <laughs> WhatsApp groups going on. But, you know, at the end of it, he's an amazing footballer. You would want him there because you know that he's going he's gonna to give it everything. And he's going he's gonna to give out to everyone, but he is going to give it everything. Whereas Hazard is just the kind of player that saps the spirit out of a team. It's like, where is he? What's he doing? Why, you know, what, what, why is he still in the field? Why doesn't the coach take him off? You get really angry. You get really, De Bruyne would get really angry with you, but you would get really angry with Hazard. Aaron Ramsey had that moment where he had to make a decision in his own head after the yellow card. Do I go all Gaza on it or do I go all um, Roy Keane on it? I guess it was somewhere in between. Well, it's certainly closer to Roy Keane than Gaza. Richie Ramsey was superbly going to miss him for the semi-final. He's suspended. 
I mean, it's probably Arsenal fans. I saw somebody actually, somebody tweeted saying that Aaron Ramsey is the player that English English fans and English media think that Jack Wilshere is or should be. That he actually provides that kind of drive for Wales. Can they withstand the loss of a player like that in the semi-final? Um, he's a huge loss to them, all right. But I, I, the, the question as to whether it's a it's, it's an overly harsh punishment with two yellow cards in five yeah. games, I think that's come up. And and I think this was always going to happen. Someone said something like forty five players going into the quarterfinals were one booking away from missing the semi final. Unfortunately for Wales, one of the really key players is the, is one of the the very few of those forty five who are actually going to miss a semi final now because of it. But yeah, he is a huge loss. But even the you, you mentioned there, Chris Coleman's post match interview. Mm. This is kind of why I, I, I have the view that it, it's unlike Murph. Murph wants the, the pampered, spoilt, ego-driven <laughs> superstars who... Go he wants to Eden Hazard in yeah, there. Yeah, Murph is an affinity with all those types of people. Yeah, sure. He yeah. wants them to shine. But that interview that Coleman gave after the, the match, like, that's memorable. We'll, we'll remember that. It, it, that inspires people. The performance inspires the, the Welsh football, the Welsh nation, and anyone who's watching sport as opposed to just you know, the, the, the people who, who get to the semi-finals just avoid the manager being sacked you know those, those countries mm. who, 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 who get there to avoid ridicule or whatever that's you're not going to buy a pair of boots that are being flogged by Chris Coleman though that's, that, that's basically what I'm talking about you know it's like is he endorsement worthy that's the question I ask of my heroes <laughs> <laughs> really Yes. That's where the That's, that's exactly what I asked. That's yes. the measurement. <laughs> Good lord. Antonio okay. Antonio Conte is endorsement worthy Ken, but uh you said I think you have a feeling that maybe he could have done a little bit more against Germany and his team. <sighs> well, you know Conte obviously he got eliminated um and they did well to take Germany's penalties because Germany are so much better than Italy. There's no comparison player for player. There's just no comparison. I mean, how many, I don't know how many Italian players would get in the German team. Maybe if Hummels was suspended, you would pick Benucci. Other than that, you know, no, nothing. So, so in a sense, to take Germany to extra time and penalties is, is an achievement that Italy should be proud of, even though, you know, historically speaking, Germany had never actually beaten them in, in eight competitive games before that quarterfinal. But, you know, I just... I watch Antonio Conte and I'm wondering to myself, what is, what is actually going on in, in this guy's head? I don't really understand. I don't, he's obviously got a big reputation as a coach. He's going to Chelsea. Chelsea's a very big club. They, they think he's hot stuff. He's being talked about in the same breath as, you know, Guardiola, Mourinho, Klopp, you know, these kind of proven uh, managers. I suppose he's every bit as, as proven as Klopp in a sense. You know, he's, he's also won domestic titles, which is, which is really what Klopp has won uh, too. But, I don't know, I mean, it seems to me, the the Germany-Italy game is a really disappointing game. And the thing that annoyed me about it was that I got the sense the most forceful, dominating personality in the game was Antonio Conte. You know, he was was ranting and raving and yapping and and barking on the sideline, gesticulating. Over what? I don't know. There there usually didn't seem to be much going on. There there doesn't, it doesn't need, he doesn't need to seem to... To need, he he gets into that emotional state based on nothing having just happened, you know. I I find it a little bit too overbearing actually, and I think it's maybe reflected a bit in the team. You know, he's 
I think you can see that Italian team was a, was a they ran further than anyone in the tournament. Certainly in the group stage, that was the case. Uh, they were working very hard. He he had them he had them working, but they were very robotic, really. They had Lorenzo Insigne on the bench, who I thought maybe would be able to. He eventually did come on, but only very late in the game. Uh, you know, Conte doesn't really seem to prize that type of creativity. I find it to be an overbearing coach. I find it to be a little bit Mourinho-like, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how this is going to happen in Chelsea. Obviously, Jose Mourinho was a success at Chelsea. Um, but Antonio Conte, remember we were talking to Gabriel Marcotti. He was saying Conte is so uh, paranoid uh, about the tactical sessions that not even all the staff are allowed to sit in on them because he doesn't trust the staff. Yeah. <laughs> not to blab, not to blab about the secrets that he's cooking up in this genius tactics lab. You know, like brilliant ideas like bringing on Simone Zaza to take a penalty in the last minute or whatever. You know, that kind of genius. Um, what's his reaction going to be when at Chelsea Football Club the, they lose their first game, maybe after winning five or six in a row, and Roman Abramovich turns up with a face like thunder the next morning at training going, what was all that about? What happened there? Do you not think? Do you not think he knows that that's what he's signing up to when he signed that? It, like no one in football is certainly if you're a manager in his in his in that category, he would have open lines of communication to a number of people who have worked within Chelsea or have worked closely to Chelsea. He knows what he's signing up to, so he is prepared or or ready for that. Oh yeah, no, we. I'm sure he he must know, but he can't uh, not know. Like he he's a, like he's he's not a fool. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so Ancelotti had a book out recently where he kind of, it was very interesting actually detailing the whole process of joining Chelsea. And Chelsea actually put him through a kind of a boot camp. Uh, they brought him to Holland for like a few weeks, uh, intensive English lessons, uh, detailed briefings on every aspect of the club. You know, Carlo's kind of sitting there looking at going, I've really never come across a club quite like this before. I mean, you, you want to fit me on an absolute everything? You know, okay, fair enough. You know, I'm Carlo Ancelotti. I'll, I roll with things. I'm, I'm happy. I'm not sure I quite need all these ring binders, but I will, I will definitely read them. I will definitely read all this stuff. Um, so I'm sure Antonio Conte will be going through a similar kind of process. The question that I would have about him is it regards his temper, really, because Ancelotti talked about this process by which, you know, it, it was literally, it was like Chelsea had won, what, seven out of their first eight games or something, lost to Wigan in one of these surprise kind of defeats that come out of nowhere. It's still top of the league, though, and cruising. Uh, and this is why he was so surprised that Abramovich turned up really angry, going, what was that? And, and Ancelotti was, you know, taken aback by this. I, remember how even-tempered, how kind of calm he is. I mean, he's not just naturally sort of calm. He's actually elevated it to his, his prime sort of managerial principle, is don't lose your temper. Things will happen to annoy you. Don't get annoyed. Just try and be calm. Try and resolve the issue. And that's, that's Ancelotti. Do you think Antonio Conte has that... Do you think Antonio Conte reacts that way to any sort of provocation? I've honestly never seen Antonio Conte be provoked and not completely go insane. I mean, he doesn't have to be provoked. It's like a throw-in that he thinks shouldn't have been given away. And he's screaming, ranting, raving, jumping up and down with his eyeballs practically popping out of his skull. I am interested to see how that's going to go when he is subjected to the first, as he considers it, unfair accusation from his owner or the first unreasonable demand which is going to happen. And I just can't wait to see how that all pans out. I'm not sure if Ken is describing Conte at this stage or this guy. Oh, what? God. You all right? 
<laughs> did that did really, frighten I, I you? I just Ken? got headphones and that was pierced right into the center. <laughs> I've lost my bell. Did you, do you? Uh, no, I don't know what. Richie, any idea what happened to my bell? No idea. No, my bell's gone. So we're, we're stuck with this Hooter. It's a Danny Baker tweet. Danny Baker uh, tweet. When Italy went out of the 1966 World Cup, fans waited for them at the airport in Rome and pelted them with rotten tomatoes. That's the style. Hashtag England. We English can only see Wales' victory against our abject failure. Our squad should be forced to pull the Wales open top bus through the streets. <laughs> uh, every French goal is making me angry again at those weedy clowns we put up for this tournament. Weedy little clowns. Contemptible creeps. <laughs> Contemptible think, creeps is good. Do you think maybe this is creep. part of the media reaction or coverage or public response to England failures which contributes to England players in successive tournaments? cowering like little boys when they take to the pitch and I a think big it might stage. be and I think if Danny Baker was here and we have asked him on the show uh, yeah. on a few occasions uh, yet to get a response as far as I know big Millwall fan I'm sure is he Danny Baker's big Millwall uh, fan what are we doing we just send our emissary in oh, yeah. Richie Sadler here Richie, Richie meets Danny Baker <laughs> and yeah no I think, I think it's true I would say Danny Baker would say well they should toughen up and get over it the contemptible creeps I'd listen mm. to criticism if I was on 200 grand a week that, all yeah, that kind of stuff. thing yeah. Might, yeah. might definitely get dredged up alright our next guest made a huge impression on us when we talked after Iceland's historic night against England not quite as happy an occasion today Anton Inge Sven Bjorsen how, how are you feeling this morning oh uh, I'm feeling uh, I guess conflicted in a way it's a uh, feeling of big hurt and loss but the overwhelming pride and emotion is it's a unique feeling of uh, (laughs) being thoroughly beaten and still having a sort of smile that just won't go away what was uh, we'll take you into the the bitter part of this bittersweet feeling what was going through your head in that first half I mean as, as Irish football fans we've been in this situation before when you have a dream and then the, you realise you've come up against a better team who are scoring goal after goal. Uh, I mean, in some, maybe just purely defiant way, I still believe that there was something that could come of this, you know, like you know, like a French revolution at halftime or something and they refused to come out or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of, weird because you know we were so thoroughly outplayed but it still felt like we were somehow in it even if only by a defiant spirit but I I must admit that at some point I thought like if we're gonna go out if we're gonna be on the receiving end of a hiding then at least do better than Brazil which we did so you know Brazil went out 7-1 we went out Five to two. So, as far as I'm concerned, Iceland is now the superior football nation. <laughs> <mission. laughs> the uh, what what struck me uh, watching it was how frustrated Iceland's uh, were going to be with the kind of goals that they'd let in. I mean, they were so simple for a team that had defended so well to be caught out by that ball over the top for Giroud and then a set piece, you know, a header from a set piece. These just weren't the kind of goals I expected Iceland to concede. I don't think we did either. I think that's what kind of threw us off I think the opener kind of knocked us out it was kind of uh, I don't know it was almost as if the bubble burst that you know we can defend backs to the wall and that way we can beat anyone but then we were beaten basically at what was supposed to be our strength and I think that kind of sapped the 
aura of invincibility that had followed the team throughout the tournament so far. It, it did, but as you said, uh, there's a. I suppose there are good ways to lose and bad ways to lose, uh, and to actually to come back in the second half to score a couple of goals. I was not. I, mean, I assume Eider Jansson is a very popular figure in Iceland, and he got a few minutes near the end. So it wasn't. It could have been worse, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, after seeing Brazil go out seven to one, I started fearing for the worst. And uh, yeah, but it's actually because, uh, as you say, Eider Jansson is uh, is a very popular figure, and he holds a very prestigious record. He and his father are the only, as far as I know, father and son to have played the national team game together. Where. Uh, I think it was 97 he came on for his father, but then he picked up an injury, so they actually never got to play a game together. <laughs> but he's been now, as I said, and that was almost 20 years ago, and uh, he was he had retired after the World Cup qualifiers, but then he was convinced to come back, and he's been our... I don't know, he's been the spiritual leader of the team, even if his legs don't hold up anymore. And I think it gave everyone kind of a cathartic feeling to see him come on. And he got a standing ovation. And yeah, it was a very, like I said, it was almost cathartic for us as a nation to see the great hope that we've had, the greatest footballer in our nation's history, come on in the tournament and it's something that means a lot to us. What were the assigned uh, players and coaches saying after the game? I mean, was there anything, you know, were they saying, did, did, they, did they say anything which, which suggested maybe this occasion, you know, the, what, what was different about this game to the previous games? Was it simply the fact that France are really, when you look at it, I suppose, by far the best team that Iceland had come up against yet? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because I think emotions were riding high and I think that uh, any sort of analysis is more gut feeling than rational. But I think that, um, I think most of all, I think was the fact that France could match, match us physically and were far superior technically. I think that the fact that, you know, we went, try to play the physical game and I think the lack of pace and maybe the fact that we believe I saw a statistic before the game that we are the first nation in history to start the same 11 players five games in a row and I think that just caught up with us that France had more rest than anyone the fact that they had pace to burn and technique to play around those which meant that we were chasing shadows and when we weren't they could match us physically, and I think that just showed the not golf in class, but I think they were just the better team and played as such. I'm looking at the World Cup qualifying group here, Anton. It's Croatia, Ukraine, mm. Turkey, and Finland. So yes, I mean it's 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 not easy, but it's not impossible either. What do you think the chances are that we'll see the Icelandic thunderclap in all its glory in Russia in 2018? Uh, I mean, now I have to believe because after this, everything seems possible. It's like 
before the tournament, we only had one objective for the entire tournament. We wanted to score a goal. And after we did that, we only wanted one point. And when we did that, we only wanted to win one game. And after that, we only wanted to make it out of the group and then make it to the quarterfinals. But what ultimately let us down at the Euros was the belief that if you buy five long lifelong dreams, you get one free. And that just wasn't the case. But I think that yeah. what's coming through now is the belief. I think uh, uh, Iceland will especially be up to play Croatia after they knocked us out at the last World Cup qualifiers. So the chance to leave them behind will be extremely strong in the nation's spirit and memory. And I think that now we have a tournament, now we have a... You know, we faced the impossible and we actually came out with something. And I think that's going to give not only the fans, but the players the belief that we can do this. And the World Cup is obviously the biggest stage in football that we haven't been to yet anyway. <laughs> and I think we can do it. I Maybe it's blind optimism, but I genuinely think we can do it. We have young players coming in and now we have... A, core group of players that play together and yeah I think we can I think we can do it maybe um, maybe people you know those of us who follow football very closely sometimes have a tendency to overestimate how important it is in the grand scheme of things but you know when you looked at the when you, when you saw that figure it was like 99.8% of Icelanders had apparently watched the England match Um I'm struggling to think of, of any comparable cultural event in history that had involved almost everybody in a given country. I mean, it's, it's almost a kind of a unique event. I wonder if you think that uh, what Iceland have done here, here in the Euros has in some way or could possibly in some way change the country. Uh, like I said, it's that... Uh like you said, 99.8% of Icelanders, I don't think even Vatican City can boast those records during a papal event. So I think that it's it's hard to describe the feeling. It's, uh, it's like I've talked about before. It's the Iceland is a nation that's very proud of our achievements per capita. We have, uh, you know, we have the most Nobel Prize winners per capita which is one, but we still have more than anyone else. And I think the national feeling is one of pride and one of like coming together. And I think the most unique thing is that everyone was for Iceland. And I don't know how to explain it better than that, but there was no let's, you know, uh, beat the French or beat the English. It's everyone, it's no anti-sentiment. It's everyone was just for the team and I think that's I honestly can't think of another comparable example I think we were in it to win it and we were all in it together regardless of political or social status or anything it was just you just found the person next to you and you hugged them and you jumped around and you just felt like you were one soul in this world yeah, that's an absolutely brilliant way of putting it, Anton. And listen, it's been great talking to you in the tournament. Hopefully, we'll you, 
Ireland are going to be in uh, the World Cup in 2018 and Iceland are going to be there as well. So I'm sure we'll talk between now and then. Thanks very much for chatting. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Great stuff by Anton Inge Sven Bjorsen. Again, cutting to the heart of the things we're supposed to enjoy about sport, <laughs> but sometimes get lost along mm-hmm. the way. You know, coming together as a, as a as bunch a of people and uh, cheering a team on, rather than necessarily going against other sides. By that thinking earlier, how would you have felt if a team of our standing got to the semi-final? If Republic of Ireland... I could probably handle it if it was the Republic of Ireland. And would it be a stain <laughs> on the wider... Tournament. <laughs> See, uh, Richie. I mean, you know, if if you if you ask me individually, <laughs> you know, who would you rather win that game? Who would you rather win that game? Oftentimes, I will, I'll be rooting for the underdog. But then, when you step back from like the quarterfinals that we watch, or the round of sixteen that you would watch over the course of four nights, I th- I still stand by the fact that on the on the balance of things, I still want fi- at least five or six of the best teams in the quarterfinals and, you know, four of those guys to get through to the semifinals. Now, and I do actually 100% take on your point that it doesn't necessarily mean the best games. When the, if the best teams keep going through, you get the best games. That's not the way it's been. But I think that there has, there's uh, like a trial by fire that you'd like to see teams that win the tournament go through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'd like to be able to say, right, well, Germany are indubitably the best team in the Euros because they've beaten... Italy, they've beaten France, and then they've beaten, you know, whoever. I mean, it, it might end up being Wales, you know, which, it, uh, well, it won't take the gloss off this particular yours. But at the end of every tournament, you'd like to be able to say, right, well, the best team have gone and won that game, or won that tournament, and they've won it in a way that kind of brooks no argument. Mm-hmm. You're saying that about root. Mm, yeah. I don't know what noise that was. That was yeah. a noise of di- mild disapproval. I certainly from don't mm-hmm. agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to move it on. I think that's what that <laughs> noise 
tried to communicate. Mm-hmm. Well, you're talking there about rooting for the underdog. I, a peculiar thing's happened to me in this tournament. I've started to really start rooting personally for Ronaldo. I don't know what, where it's come from. Yeah. And, and I think I'm just over, I'm just getting really sick. It just jars with me. The, the sniping and sneering from people, whether it's online or in conversation or pundits or whoever, um, you know, he's, he's, he's motivated for what people from a distance are trying to work out, you know, what motivates this fella. And they don't like what motivates him, as opposed to, you know, all the goals he gets or the performances he gives or all of that kind of stuff. Or he looks at the TV screen too much or he's got too big an ego or any of that kind of crap. So it just... Almost to shut those people up, <laughs> I want Ronaldo to go on and win the tournament. But it's which is you're str- you're 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 struggling badly with that. But I mean, I, I, I yes, it's 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 I'm I'm struggling with it. I don't know where it's well, coming I, from. But it, no, I think it's I actually do think it's it's uh, totally understandable because I mean it's people hate the guy so much that. Well, it's because he had the pop at Iceland after the first game. He but kind like, of so he kind of said. Uh, I don't said, think that has anything to do with it necessarily. I mean, I think people well, no, have made their it, mind up one way or the other about Cristiano. Yeah, Ronaldo. and that confirmed everything that people dislike about Cristiano Ronaldo. That he was so ungracious that he couldn't even couldn't even feign to give a little bit. Of, he, actually, nobody wanted him to praise Iceland. Just maybe don't denigrate them after their biggest triumph. What, which what, which what, kind what, of an, now I do understand that the reaction since then is a little bit ludicrous. But what if you could? What's his greatest hits, his greatest failings, the things that most upset you about Ronaldo? So if you're going to be ultra-critical of him, what's he guilty of? Well, you're kind of talking to the wrong man because I've always kind of yeah. for Ronaldo for a long time. But I suppose the people who really... it's Look, he spends... Ken, who, who was the player who you said marked him recently and couldn't get over the fact that he was l- literally spending half the game looking at the big screen? looking the at himself from in the big Wolfsburg, screen. wasn't it? Or someone, Ken? Um, yeah, wasn't it a, one of the guys in a... Champions League quarterfinal. There's, yeah, just, there's uh, that. There's that. There's his refusal to. I, I mean, I, okay, that's very in, low. In, that's very. We're starting at a very low level of, in in terms of offence. <laughs> he, he's looking at a TV. I'm I'm thinking of all the other offences we know of sports people in public. So we're starting. He looks at the telly. Ken, what what what's your stance on this? Well, I think the I think the problem uh, with Ronaldo the, is that like he's kind of he he. It's just such a tempting target for mockery because he, he's just got this tremendous self-love, which is, I mean, it's just, it's irresistible to people to, to, make, to make fun of him. Like, how, how could you not make fun of such a ludicrous figure? Um, you know, I mean, he's an amazing player. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he's one of the greatest players of all time. I mean, everybody knows that. I don't think anybody really says that he's not. Um, people maybe say that he's just he's not as good as Lionel Messi. I think the reason that he's not, um, well, I suppose it's something to do with like basic ball skills, which Messi just has to the nth degree that nobody can really match. But uh, it has to do with the fact that Ronaldo obviously sees himself as being above the team, obviously sees himself as being above everybody else, whereas Lionel Messi isn't so obvious about that. And that's why people can sort of maybe... Maybe he just grasps the team dimension of the sport a little bit better than Cristiano Ronaldo does. And maybe that's ultimately why he is going to be the greater player, why most people will think that. Which is not to say that Cristiano Ronaldo isn't an absolutely amazing, a great player, a great champion. You know, an example, as George Mendes would say, an example, not just as, a, as an athlete, but as a human being. And, you know, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways he is. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for an example of ambition, of hard work, of dedication you know, of, of, of absolute devotion to your profession. Um, 
of delivering again and again for your teams, you know, over year after year after year, then I can't think of many better than Cristiano Ronaldo. I can only think of one. The Lionel Messi comparison there, like it, Lionel Messi has been not, like he's refused to show up for training the morning after being like substituted or not in the starting lineup at Barcelona. Like this footage of him being called to the touchline by Luis Enrique in the earlier part of his tenure as manager and refusing to come off the pitch as a substitute. Like this doesn't scream like a player. Well, I mean, Ronaldo, Ronaldo substituted himself at Old Trafford one time. Do you remember that? He just turned around, yeah. made the substitution signal, and just walked off down the tunnel. But you know what I mean? Yeah, but the, <laughs> the, 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 the I mean, notion Ronaldo that Messi would never, would never be dropped, wouldn't it? Would never be dropped at Real Madrid. I mean, that situation hasn't arisen. If he if he was, I'm sure he'd kick off. Yeah, but like, but we're not in the hypothetical when it comes to Messi. We we know he he kicks off. We know how he reacts. So it's wrong to portray him as this person who. Is, is, is buys fully into a team ethos. Oh, but, but it's the combination play. It's the fact that Messi actually links up with teammates. Ronaldo doesn't. You know, he, he, I mean, he does sometimes. He does when he has to. But his first thought is always to shoot. Always to shoot. You know, Messi's not always like that. There's a little bit more variation in what he does. Um, you know, maybe that's something to do with the players that he played with just being better at team play. The, cu- the club that he plays for is obviously all about team play, collective play, whereas Real Madrid is, is more about a, you know, a star system, get the ball to Ronaldo and let him have a shot at goal. But, you know, I do think there's a, there is an obvious difference. So I think that Leo Messi can control games, can sort of drop back into midfield in a game. And For instance, Messi against Man City in the Champions League yeah. last year. Mm-hmm. I've never seen uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, not, 2015 I'm talking about, I've never seen Ronaldo give a performance like that. I don't, I don't believe he can do it. He's not even interested in doing it. He only just wants to score. It's all about scoring. And that's, that's fine. He does it more than, he does it more than almost anyone. Mm. But I just think that Messi has got more uh, dimensions to his game. I, think I, can't what, believe, I can't believe we're arguing about who's better Messi. No, we're not. I know. It's just that the, the, the portrayal of Messi as this ultra team player, I think, is wide of the mark. Um, but Ronaldo, the, just what, what it fascinates me about him, the, the, that he's so driven, mm. even with all he's won, like the Ballon d'Ors, La Liga's, Champions League, Premier League, FA, whatever, it doesn't matter, individual team honours, and he's his, he is his age, and he's like furious at, 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 at an opening game draw against Iceland. So like we, we mentioned England earlier in this podcast and, and their personality, their attitude, or their, like a fraction of Ronaldo's personality or temperament put into those England players would transform them. <laughs> Forgetting this playing ability, like just that, that, that drive, that whatever it is inside him that keeps him striving for perfection all the time is... I, it's, it's a thing to behold. That's why, I mean, I cannot wait to see this game against Wales. I mean, of all the teams that Ronaldo could be playing at this point in the tournament, he gets to play against Gareth Bale's team. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that this for him is a personal duel with Gareth Bale. He has to prove his, his dominance over his Friend and teammate, teammate and rival. But again, I, 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 I wouldn't... See anything wrong with that? Yeah, yeah, that, but that's just his source of motivation. That's just a particular topic area that's going to drive him in this particular fixture. But it, it again, I judge a fella on, on the result. Like, how is he playing? Like, as opposed to picking apart, well, he got a hat trick, but well, he's only motivated by this. Yeah, Do you I know mean, what I mean? The, the, I, I think the biggest the, issue in the short term, I think, here is that Ronaldo struggled badly the other night, and outside of probably the couple of goals he got against Hungary, hasn't contributed that much. Whereas Bale looks. 
Bale looks like a younger Cristiano Ronaldo, in a, which I suppose is what he is in quite a lot of ways. That game's on Wednesday, Thursday's Germany against France. You have covered a couple of statistics about the Irish performances, Ken, before we wrap up this well, post-quarter final is, is, I mean, I read the UEFA website, Owen, uh, yeah. so it's not a case of having dug out these... Well, uh, you, you did it so we don't have to, Ken. <laughs> but it was just their, their statistics on the, um, on the group stage. Uh, I remember that uh, Michael Cox Donald marking caused ruffled some Irish feathers mm-hmm. uh, with a tweet suggesting that Ireland were physically and technically inadequate. Yep. Uh, um, it is the case, Owen, according to UEFA statistics, that out of the 24 uh, teams in the Euro 2016 group stage, Ireland ranked 23rd in terms of distance covered. Uh, when you add up the distance run by all our players, only Albania did less than us. And they, of course, had a man sent off, uh, Lorik Sarna, sent off in the first half of one of their games, uh, which may have something to do with, uh, with their relative underperformance. So uh, in that sense, uh, you would have to suggest that maybe we did have a, a little bit of a physical issue. I mean, it's not always the case that not running as far as your opponent shows that you weren't as fit as your opponent. There are different styles of play. You know, I mean, if you're playing a more sit-back and, and wait type of game, uh, you're not necessarily going to cover as much distance as, the, as if you were doing, you know, intense pressing, uh, trying to chase down your opponent, particularly, you know, up in their half of the field. But, you know, when you consider that, having run less than anybody in the tournament, we looked so exhausted, uh, you know. Up against a good team, uh, one, one good aspect of last night... Uh, France Iceland is that I think I think it made us look pretty good in a sense. I mean, England were watching it, thinking the opposite thing. England were watching it, going, "Oh no, you know, we're uh, this is really making us look bad." But for Ireland, I suppose we could see what a quality team uh, France are. We saw once again Olivier Giroud uh, dominating a game against uh, um, not quite uh, defenders from the very top bracket of the game. Are, really, is there any player in the world you'd rather have in your team other than maybe Ronaldo and Messi uh, in a game like that? Possibly not, but uh, it's also quite a backhanded compliment to say you're giving Olivier Giroud there. Oh, I, I, I give him the full compliment and say that he was outstanding against a team who most other t- sides have struggled to break down. Two assists, well, two, he was involved in two goals and scored another two uh, after his assists against Ireland. I think he's hitting form at the right time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see him try that try that stuff now on, on Boateng in the next game. Um uh, and if he does, fair play to him. I mean, I, I was tweeting about Giroud. He did one of those um, layoffs to nobody. He did that again last night. And I thought I couldn't resist saying, oh, there's <laughs> that Giroud move again. And there was immediately a couple of Arsenal fans um, taking issue with that. And it reminded me of, a, we were talking, talking to another journalist here who covers a lot of Arsenal. And uh, basically, we decided that there are a couple of different kinds of annoying Arsenal fans. Those who think Giroud is absolute rubbish. And those who think Giroud is absolutely brilliant, um, when the truth is that Giroud is a fairly ordinary striker uh, who is particularly good when he gets that feeling, I'm definitely a better player than the guy I'm up against today. Uh, usually that only happens when he's up against uh, fairly average players, though. The last shred of hope, the last iota of dignity the idiot England team had was that they might have gone out to a decent side. Now we know. I call on the admittedly idiot FA to revoke all caps awarded to idiot England players at hashtag UEFA, or UEFA uh, 2016. They should not disgrace the heritage. And the last one, here they are, 
the idiot England squad, which is, and it's a photo of them getting off the plane in France. How does he find the time? Richie, you're not even that amused by this. You seem quite, we've got almost to, annoyed with Danny Baker. We've I got think to get he's, him on. he's doing too much of it at this stage. I, you know, it, it's like uh, the righteous anger you hear from fans outside grounds, you know, on the YouTube videos. The first time so they mean it, yeah. And then every other time it's kind of, they're imitating that. But I, I still felt it was, it was worth bringing to the attention of the, of the nation, given how many of you all tweeted us to say, Danny Baker's gone off on one again, lads. What do you think, by the way, about the, the new England manager? I have a very strong conviction about who the next man should be. Mm-hmm. Go on. Who do you think? Who Gary do you think? Neville. Oh, Gary Neville, are you serious? Well, it quite possibly would have been if he hadn't uh, been a, it, uh, tried managing in is advance. He, is your candidate English? Bloody right he is, Richie. Oh, it's Big Sam. Big Sam? Yeah, well, you're, loads of people want Big Sam. Barry Denning, Mark Horgan, all the top football guys. <laughs> <laughs> Big Sam is just staring England in the face mm. with a challenging look at his eye. He's, he's sitting in the waiting room of the England uh, interviewing palace uh, in, the, in the way that he sits on the bench, you know, leaned back with his arms folded and his legs kind of splayed out and an impatient look at his face going, what is taking these guys? It's so clearly Big Sam's destiny to manage England. Um, I, just don't, I just don't understand what the problem is. I mean, apparently some of the English players uh, think that it would be better to have a foreign manager. They don't like uh, the English alternatives. To which I say, which foreign manager do you think would be interested in this job? Maybe Sven-Jorn Eriksson? Because you're not going to get a top foreign manager interested in England. They don't see it as a big job anymore. I mean, it's a bit like going to Qatar. You know, you make a lot of money. But it's not as though it's, it's a serious job. They need to have, in my opinion, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say they need to have an English manager. I mean, maybe they found a, there's nothing necessarily about, you know, English manager. I just think English managers, it's, to them, it really is the biggest job in the world. And I think, um, I think Sam is maybe the man they need. I, maybe, the, I have a couple, a couple of reservations. I mean, I think that the media might be a bit snobby towards him and he is obviously a bit thin-skinned and that could turn into a running battle uh, which, which dragged the whole thing down. I've no doubt that's a, that's a danger. But, you know, if you're looking for a man to look into the eyes of an English footballer, to see into his heart, to reach in there and extract the best of, of what he's got to offer, then I really don't know uh, how you can look past Big Sam. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Thanks Richie. Richie. Thanks, Kieran. Cheers, Thanks, Thanks Ken. Mayor. Thanks, Richie. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. It's good to get him forward down that right-hand side, but just look at the desire. He gets there first, Basel the viral, and he plants it into the corner of the net. Unbelievable. What is that? That's the second time he's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.